0: Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. Maybe for uh, the last time for a while in our church, we will be turning to the book of Judges. What an amazing study we've had. Just amazing. Some of your encouragement, your comments, your... um, Honestly, just the the Lord being glorified in our midst as we have seen things that have left us changed. And really what I want to do is look back on those things this morning. Uh, We finished the book of Judges last week, but we we can't conclude it yet. We need to spend time together this morning going back and looking at what we've just covered. Travel is a great thing. Going on vacations, uh, just amazing as... um, Many of them in our church, even now, right? We've got Tim and Jeff who are gone on vacations. Great, revitalizing, rejuvenating. Sometimes it's to see people like Randy. Just go see mom, to go hang out with your son. Maybe there's uh, people that we go see. Travel's a great thing. And studying the Old Testament, in my opinion, is like vacationing. It's like traveling. It's like going around on a trip, on a journey. You see so many different sights, you experience so many different amazing experiences. And so our time together through the book of Judges has really been a big vacation, a big trip together through the Old Testament. And just like when you get home from a trip, you want to tell people what you saw. Uh, we, We do that through pictures, right? Here's a picture of of what I experienced. We want to bring them in. Uh, They can't smell what we smell, but we want to describe the smells that we were a part of. We want to describe the sounds of the environment that we were in, the grandeur. How many times do we say, well, this picture doesn't do justice to what I actually saw? That's what we're going to try and do this morning. We're going to look at snapshots. And really, there's two ways. I don't know if you have friends like this. There's two ways to go about rehearsing and retelling the vacation There's the friend that says, here, I have all of these pictures. Let me pull out just a couple, and we'll drill deep into these pictures. And I want to tell you the story in the background. And then there's the friend that says, let me pull out the entire photo book, and we're going to go through every single picture. So let's start from the beginning. Before we even got up to go on our trip, this is what, and just picture after picture, and you're just like, all right, let's get going. Let's keep moving. We can't go through every single snapshot of what we covered. But we're going to just look at a couple And I want these to be snapshots in your mind. I want these to be Polaroid pictures, as it were, in your brain that you will not soon forget, that you can carry around with you wherever you go. I know for me, in studying this book and in preaching this book, this book has left me changed, altered. There are things that I view about myself that I didn't view that way before we started studying this book. And so I want us to look at three main snapshots of the book of Judges together. Three main pictures from our time through this book that have left an indelible impression upon me, and I pray upon you as well. And as you can see, that will lead us this morning into our time of communion together. Now, this is a perfect Lord's Day to celebrate communion as we go through our conclusion to the book of Judges. So even as we're going through it, prepare your heart even now to partake. This is, these, are, these elements are for believers So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, prepare even now to celebrate. We're going to celebrate through this sermon the grace of Jesus Christ. But prepare even now to celebrate together as one body these elements in communion. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I would just encourage you to listen, hear the patterns that we have seen together as a church in the book of Judges, and see if they're not true in your own heart and in your own life. And then hear the remedy that Jesus has made, has done, has performed through the gospel and see if today would be the day that you'd say, yes, I need him. And you could celebrate these elements for the very first time as a believer if you would turn to Jesus this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time in his word. God, we ask that you and your kindness through your spirit as the psalmist prays would incline our hearts to your testimonies would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, would unite our hearts to fear your name. Our hearts desire autonomy. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, break our will that desires autonomy and unite our heart to fear you and not to do whatever we want to do. We have learned through this study what doing what is right in our own eyes will lead to. So, Father, please be kind to us this morning. We do not deserve your satisfaction in your word this morning. We don't deserve it. We don't come to your word with any merit of our own to say, this is the reason why we should learn something, not our intellect, not even our desire to learn. We are asking that purely on the basis of your kindness and your grace, you would open our eyes to see Jesus this morning. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. The first snapshot, we're going to do three snapshots and three conclusions of those snapshots and of the book of Judges. The first snapshot is that of defiance. Snapshot number one is defiance. The Polaroid that I have in my mind of this snapshot It's really the last three chapters of the book of Judges. Uh, I was talking to somebody about how I was really not looking forward to the ending of the book of Judges because it's so disturbing and disgusting and depraved and they looked at me and smiled and they said well you picked the book (laughs) i don't feel sorry for you you're the one that picked the book and i said that's true but the last three chapters of this book have been horrendous uh chapter 17 and 18 get us going on a pattern downhill but chapter 19 20 and 21 i'll never forget those chapters I'll never forget even having to be careful with, with people in our church. Uh, during the preaching of chapter 19, there were little ones wandering around in the church, and I thought, we have to be careful in even the way we're describing the sin that's evident in these verses. It was so depraved. So I have a snapshot in my mind under the heading of defiance that I'll never forget. I'll never forget the snapshot, the picture of the Levite's concubine beaten, bloodied, with her hand outstretched at the threshold of the door, with the door locked, and the Levite opening the door and looking down said, come on, get up. I'll never forget that snapshot. Her hand, maybe a trail of dirt behind her, she just crawled her way back a trail of dirt and blood and tears and her hand grasping that threshold. She didn't even have a name. We were never given her name. She's just a woman that was defiled, abused, and was killed. And I'll never forget her. I will never forget her. And it isn't just her suffering that I'll never forget. It's the cause of her suffering That I'll never forget. She is just where Israel had finally come to. She is just finally where the defiance and rebellion of Israel had taken them all the way down in their depravity to where we see this woman grasping the threshold. It was not an act that was done in isolation. The increasing canonization of Israel leads to this place. This snapshot that I want you all to have, I want you to hold. You have pictures in your wallet of your kids, you have pictures in your wallet of people that you love. I want you to have this one in your mental wallet because I don't want you to leave this picture behind. This is where compromise leads. In Judges chapter 1, verse 21, The sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem till this day. That verse, when we read it, seemed incredibly benign about nine months ago, right? That verse seemed like, well, yeah, I mean, nobody in Israel is driving anybody out. So they joined the club. That verse just seemed so benign to us. And now we see at the end of this study, we're simple tiny incremental disobedience has led to first they say "Eh, we don't really need to drive them out then they say let's start adopting some of their practices a Levite a man of God who's supposed to be a priest before God starts having multiple wives and then we get to chapter 19 incrementally compromise starts happening and before you know it you are at the end of the book of Judges with depravity on display That snapshot, I want that picture in your mental wallet because I want whenever you are tempted to say about your sin, well, it's no big deal. I want you to hold that picture. Whenever you're tempted to say, "Eh, it's just a little sin, I want you to hold that picture because that picture is where little sins lead. You don't don't wake up one day and start living out the sin of that picture. It's just little sins by little compromise here compromise there and before you know it you're there this is exactly what having no king looks like being your own king doing whatever's right in your own eyes that picture is a picture of what having no king and doing whatever you want to do in your own eyes looks like and as you look at that picture maybe even now the lord would bring up guilt in your own heart of sin that you've committed and you see, man, I, I, I definitely have not dealt with this rightly. I have, I have compromised. I've called this little. I haven't really said this is a big issue. That guilt is good. We talked about this in Sunday school. That guilt is good. Let guilt lead you to the one who can deal with it and forgive you. Guilt is good. There are things that are incredibly wrong in a world that is east of Eden, and we've witnessed that close up and personal every Sunday in our study in the book of Judges. So our first snapshot, defiance. Our second snapshot, discipline. Our second snapshot is discipline. Now this picture for me, in my mind, I just see camels. I see camels, I have a snapshot of the woman, and she is in my mental wallet, and I have the snapshot of camels. And if you remember correctly from Judges chapter 6, these camels had a lot of camel bling. Do you remember they kept stealing? The Midianites kept stealing all of the jewelry and all of the uh, precious stones that Gideon and his household had and the Israelites. In chapter 6 through 7 and 8, moving on into 8, the Midianites were oppressive people, and they were oppressive with their camels. They would wait until all the food had been grown. They would go in, they'd take all the food, and they'd leave. So I just see camels. I see a bunch of camels. I've I've sat on camels. Camels are not incredibly comfortable, in my opinion. I just have a snapshot of camels. But when I see those camels, what I see is I see discipline. Turn to chapter 2, verse 16. You remember, this was actually one whole sermon, 16 through 23. The Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. So God raised up deliverers from those who were oppressive, the discipline of God, yet they didn't listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods, they bowed themselves down to them, they turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them, but... It came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Why did he not do that? Because their defiance had led to discipline. Their defiance had led to discipline. God is too good and too kind to not allow you to stay in your sin. He is too good and too kind to just let you wander headlong into sin. He will discipline you. He will give you consequences. Your defiance will lead to God's discipline. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. You know this passage, fixing our eyes on Jesus, considering Him, who endured such hostility? Drop down to verse five, Hebrews chapter 12, verse five. The writer of Hebrews says, You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, your sons. So if you're a believer, this is addressed to you. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For the Lord loves those whom he disciplines. And those whom he disciplines, he loves. He scourges every son whom he receives. He scourges them. He disciplines them because he loves them. Verse 7, it's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You're being disciplined as sons. Discipline comes after defiance. But if you're without discipline entirely, of which we've all become partakers, then you're illegitimate children. You're not sons. If you're not getting any discipline, then maybe you're not even a Christian discipline. We tend to just try and get the discipline of God away from us as fast as we can. Brothers and sisters, I just want to ask you this morning, is there a place where God might be disciplining you? Is there a place in your life where God might be disciplining you? We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. I've been sick for a while, and I don't want to instantly say sickness equals sin, because that can be biblical, but that also might not be, right? We see sometimes God brings about sickness because of sin. We also see sometimes sickness is brought about because of righteousness. So which is it? I don't know. That's why I'm going into the Word to ask God to reveal my heart. But I've been sick, and so I'm trying to figure out, God, are you trying to get my attention? Well, he's obviously trying to get my attention. What is it that you want me to learn? Is it something in the past that I've done? Is it something in the future that you want me to do? Don't regard the working of God in your life in in the crummiest of moments. Don't regard it lightly. Has he done something in your life recently that you look at and you go, oh, why did that happen? Maybe today is the day to say, it was discipline for something I had done. Maybe God's trying to get your attention. We need to learn from God's discipline, not try and throw it away. Not try and throw it away. Learn that the goal is the blessing that there is in repentance. So we have defiance, a terrible snapshot, a terrible Polaroid in our mental wallets. We have discipline. Funny, on the outset, just a bunch of camels with camel bling around their neck. But once we realize what that is, we see the severity of that in our own lives. That leads to snapshot number three, deliverance. Snapshot number three is deliverance. And for this, oh, I have a lot of pictures, man. I've got a lot of pictures. I see, I I, I took a picture of a donkey's jawbone. And do you remember the way it was described for us? A fresh donkey's jawbone. That word for fresh, it still had all of its teeth inside of it. So I see a jawbone with teeth and maybe a little bit of blood splattered on it because I see the snapshot of after Samson had used it. Maybe a couple of the teeth had fallen out too at that point. I see, remember Shamgar? Anybody remember Shamgar. Back in the very, very beginning, with an ox goad, slaughtering people with an ox goad. I still don't know how he did that. We're going to find out in heaven in the DVD library there. But I see an ox goad, and I see Shamgar. I see my, uh, my best friend, the Southpaw Savior. Remember Ehud? I see Ehud. I see him. I have a snapshot of him jumping out of the window. Remember when he had closed and locked the doors after he had killed King Eglon? And he was sitting on the windowsill about to jump out and I see him looking back with sadness in his face. Not because of Eglon. He deserves what he got. But because he lost his dagger that he had made. It says he had handmade his own dagger and when he thrust it into the stomach of that king, the fat enveloped the the sword so he couldn't pull it back out. He tried and he tried and he couldn't and he went, I gotta leave it. But all that hard work to make a sword and I have to leave it behind. I see Gideon I see a bunch of men with pictures over their lamps just saying this is the stupidest idea ever and then watching God's glory on display. I see a loom of hair when Samson was trying to, uh, Delilah was trying to get the, the secret to Samson's strength out of him. He talks about the hair and seven ponytails weaved into this loom and he rips it I see that one. That's a snapshot that has one of those uh, iPhone live pictures to it. Because if you look at the picture, you see both of them staring at each other with a broken loom in the back, and they're both very angry, pointing a finger. And then if you press play, you can see a little snapshot of what it is. And when you press, when you hold it down, they're both yelling. She's saying, "Why'd you break my loom?" He's saying, "Why'd you want to take my strength away from me?" And they're both fighting. And we we look and we go, "That's what marriage is not supposed to be like." We le- We've learned so many lessons. I see all these different objects that remind me that God doesn't just discipline his people. He delivers his people. He doesn't just discipline them. He delivers them. I see a hammer and a nail through the the temple of Sisera. You remember that? I I see on display the judgment of God to deliver his defiant people. We went through the cycle of judges several different times. When we see the people are sinning, God brings in uh, enslaving people, and they oppress them, and then God's people cry out, please, supplication, help, and God brings salvation. And that cycle happened over and over again. And then as we got towards the end of the book, the people aren't even crying out. Remember with the Philistines, with Samson? They yell at Samson, stop trying to get rid of the Philistines. We're okay. We're not too bad. We'll we'll have a happy relationship. They aren't even asking to be delivered, and God still delivers them. We saw grace on display time and time again. God, by his very nature, is a Savior. And you're right if you have ever asked in our entire sermon series through Judges, if you've ever made the statement, man, they don't deserve his salvation, you're right. But neither do you, neither do I, neither do we. We have been defiant, just like Israel. God has disciplined us, and he has delivered us through his Son. God is the punisher of sin, he's the discipliner of sin, and he's the deliverer of sin. And how you put all of those together, how do all of those fit? How can God punish, deliver, and discipline sin all at the same time? How does that work? And the answer is the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is the answer to how all those things can be reconciled together. So I have snapshots. Snapshots, Polaroid pictures of defiance, of discipline, and of deliverance. Which leads us to the conclusion of the entirety of the book of Judges. Three statements. They're a little bit lengthy, so I'll say them a couple times. Three statements to end our time in the book of Judges. What are we supposed to do with this book? What are we supposed to walk away from with this book? What feelings should we have? What thoughts should we think? What action should we take as we walk away from the book of Judges? Number one, conclusion number one, we need a deliverer who can come without being called for since we aren't really seeking God. We need a deliverer We need one. We've gone through the book of Judges and we have seen our need for a deliverer. So we need one. But we need a very specific kind of deliverer. We need a deliverer who will come without being called for because we're not really seeking God anyway. We're like the Israelites who say, we're fine in our enslavement to sin. We're fine. It's not oppressing us that much. We'll be okay. You don't really need to deliver us. In fact, it's going to create more work if you deliver us. So just let's let things status quo. We're fine. We need a deliverer who can come without being called for since we aren't really even seeking God at all. We all want our own autonomy. All, we, we all want to do what we want to do. Nobody sins because they have to. Do you realize that? Nobody sins because they have to sin. Nobody's saying, oh, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. We all sin because we want to sin. We sin because we love it. The only reason sin has any power in your life is because you love sin. Now, on the one hand, that sounds incredibly depressing. Wait, I sin because I love sin and it has power because of my love for it? Yes. That's the bad news. But the good news is because it has to do with your love and what you love the most, then you can defeat sin with a greater pleasure in finding your satisfaction in Christ. If sin did not attract you, it would have no power And as hard as it is to hear that, it's wonderful news because it means that the power to defeat that sin in our lives is just simply a deeper, greater, more satisfying love. So what is it that you love? This is why we need a deliverer who will come and help us, turn us to him and to love him, because we're not even seeking him. We don't love him. We're not seeking him. That's why we gather together on Sundays to recalibrate. What are we seeking? What do we love? why we stand up here and we preach that's why this isn't just a lecture a lecture is just gaining more information this isn't a motivational speech there's a lot of motivational speeches out there in churches that are getting you to have action steps do this 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 and this and everybody's rah-rah for Jesus this isn't a motivational speech a sermon is all about helping you love Jesus more it's about worship I want you to walk away worshiping Jesus Because if you worship him and you love him more than you love anything in this world, then you will start to hate sin because you have a superior love. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments, right? If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Why would we ever love Jesus? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So we want to follow him. We want to stop sinning. We don't want to do what it is that killed our Savior. So how do we love him more? First John tells us, we, we love him because he first loved us. So we stare at the first love that he gave to us. He first loved us. We need a deliverer who will seek us out and love us first because we're not seeking him. So once we see that we have a deliverer in Christ who has sought us out, who has called us to himself, now we see a reason why we can love him more than we love sin. So number one, we need a, a deliverer who can come without being called for since we're not really even seeking God at all. Number two, this deliverer will have to do it all himself because we can't contribute to our saving. Number two, this deliverer, conclusion number two, this deliverer who needs to come without being called for because we're not seeking him, this deliverer, number two, will have to do it all by himself. They have to do it all by themselves. They can't involve us. It cannot. Salvation cannot involve us because we can't contribute to our saving. How many times have we seen that in this book? People are trying. Gideon is trying to do what's right, and then he starts going off the rails. I will not be your king, but I'll just name my son. My dad is king. We can't contribute to our salvation. We can't contribute to our saving. So this deliverer that we need is going to have to do it all on his own since we can't contribute. Realize this is the difference between what the Bible teaches and every other religion in the world. This right here is the difference. Most people, if you were to ask most people, what is religion? They would say, religion is all about this really mean God who's just really annoying and just has had a bad day, and we're good people trying to show him that we're good and we do good things, and he gets happier and he lets us into heaven. That's the basis of religion, right? showing a really angry, mean, bad God that we're really nice, good people. But the, the beauty of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, the truth of the gospel is that God is a good God, and we are bad people. We cannot contribute to getting to a good God. So God is telling us, no, 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 you need a Savior. You need a deliverer. I'll do it for you, but you need somebody to save you because you can't do it on your own. That's why the gospel is different than every other religion in the world. And yet we buy into this. Maybe even in the book of Judges, we've we've tried really hard to not turn the book of Judges into a moralistic idea, moralistic sermons. Because most people think that the book of Judges and the Bible itself is just moralism. Most people think, if you were to ask, what is Christianity all about? It's how to be a better person, right? How to be a better person. That's the biggest misconception, that Christianity is some moral betterment program. Just got to just do a couple things, make, make me better. There's nothing wrong with preaching morality, and we certainly don't want to preach the opposite. But moralism, preaching the commands of Scripture and nothing else, that you should just try to be a better person, try harder, and God will love you for trying harder. That's not the Christian message. That's an anti-Christian message. That's not the gospel. And when we preach messages that say, you can contribute to your salvation, you can do things, God will save you 99% of the way, but you do a 1%. When we we contribute to our salvation in any way, shape, or form, that's not the gospel. That's an anti-gospel message. The people in Matthew chapter 7 who are saying, Lord, Lord, we've done all of these things in your name. Look at what we've done for you. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because it's not about It's not about doing your doing. It's about His doing in your place. Moralism is a devastating message. Ultimately, moralism is a devastating message because if I'm up here preaching, saying that somehow you can contribute to your salvation, it will either lead to pride or despair. It will either lead you to saying, I can, and I have, and I'm awesome. (laughs) Or it will lead you to saying, I can't, and I never can, and I must obviously not be saved. Moralism, preaching moralism, either leads to pride or despair. That's the rich young ruler. Remember the story of the rich young ruler, good teacher, what must I do? What, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? I need to do something, right? And Jesus starts by saying, who's good? Nobody's good except for God alone. You're trying to get to heaven on the basis of your goodness. And the man, after Jesus says, nobody is good except for God alone, the man basically in essence says, but I am. I'm I'm good too. God alone, yes, but me too. I've kept all the commandments. I've done everything. And what does Jesus do to try and show him, no, you fail. He he reveals the law, right? The law is a mirror. It's showing us. We've all fallen short. We can't contribute to salvation. So to take the law and then preach it in a moralistic way, to say that we can contribute to our salvation, this is why we tried as hard as we can I'm a fallible human being, so maybe I have gone off the roads in preaching through the book of Judges, but I have tried as best I can to make sure this isn't a sermon series of just be this, be that, the hero of who Samson is, be like Gideon. No, because all of these people are falling short. The essence of what Judges is showing us, it's a mirror to show us that we're falling short too. You don't look at a mirror, find something in your teeth and say, "Oh, I got to get that out." And pry the mirror off the wall and start trying to get it out of your teeth. You don't do that, right? You use the mirror to see you got something, and then you get floss out or you brush your teeth. Trying to preach moralism, trying to say, "You just you can do this. You've got this. Be a better person. You can contribute to salvation." Preaching that, that's moralistic preaching, and that's like taking the mirror off of the wall and trying to pry out what you just saw from the mirror. The law is that mirror. And the law is supposed to show us we've got something in our teeth, we've got something in our soul, and we can't get it out. And the deliverer that we need has to do it all for us because we cannot contribute anything to our salvation. Only a true believer, a true believer is the only person who can say, I know without a shadow of a doubt I'm going to heaven, and that not be a prideful statement. A genuinely saved, true believer is the only person who can say, I know without a shadow of a doubt I'm going to heaven, and that that's not a prideful statement, because I know I'm going to heaven on the basis of the work of another. He has delivered me. He has saved me. People say, well, what about works? We're studying the book of James. What about works? Don't I have to do something? Yes, but you don't do something to get saved. You do something because you have been saved. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. It's faith equals salvation plus works. And so if you have been saved, if you know the love that God has given to you, if God loves us, He first loved us, and we love Him back because He first loved us, then we're going to keep His commandments because we love Him. That's the gospel. The gospel, the good news declaration, the the word gospel, euangelion, means a declaration. It's a good news declaration. Victory has been overcome. The, the, The enemy has been defeated. Victory has been won. That's what Jesus proclaims over us. The enemy of sin has been defeated. The enemy of the penalty of sin has been overcome. I've done the work for you. Just think about that statement. the, The word, euangelion, an army coming home to proclaim, we fought the battle, we won the war. Do the people back at home say, awesome, and they take up their guns and they say, let's go fight? No, they say, thanks for doing that. Thank you so much for winning on our behalf. That's the gospel. Jesus proclaims to you, it's been done, it's finished. And we just simply get to say, thank you for doing the work. The law says, do, do, do. The gospel says, it's done. So, we need to deliver who can save us entirely, because we cannot contribute to our salvation in any way, shape, or form. If we preach moralism, uh, the laws of, of the Bible are like railroad tracks, What we want to do, we want to live, but the engine that lets us start going down those those tracks is the gospel that fuels our living. And so if you don't have the gospel and you just preach moralism, you're just saying move this train from point A to point B on your own strength. That's why it's either pride or despair, right? If somebody can get behind that engine and push it on their own ability, they can say, look, I've done a little bit of work. They just, and they push it an inch and they go, look, I'm awesome. I budged it. And then most people say they get behind that thing and they say, I can't move it at all. We need Jesus to sit in the driver's seat and propel us forward with the gospel. So we need a deliverer to come and do the work for us. And that leads us to point number three, conclusion number three in the book of Judges. We need this deliverer not just to purge us of external oppression, but internal sin. We need this deliverer to do a work that only he can do. And what is that work? A lot of people think our biggest issue is that which is outside of us and that which is inside of us can take care of that which is outside of us. In in fact, it's the exact opposite. Our biggest issue is that which is inside of us and that which is inside of us can't take care of that. So that which is outside of us needs to fix what's inside of us, what's wrong inside of us. We need this deliverer not just to purge us of external oppression, not just get rid of the Midianites, not just get rid of the Philistines, not just get rid of all these people, We need this deliverer to purge us of internal sin. That's why none of our sermons ended with we should be like Gideon. The book of Judges is not we should be like these people. Have you seen in the book of Judges, and really the whole Bible, if you read the whole Bible, have you seen how the authors take great care to make sure that the characters that they're speaking of are totally marred with sin. Have you seen that? You see David and Goliath, and you think, wow, this guy's the hero, right? He is the hero. He's the man. Everybody in Israel stinks compared to that guy. I want to be like David. A couple more chapters later, he's killing somebody, sleeping with somebody who's not his spouse, trying to cover it up when they have a kid. And we've just been saying, "Uh, I, I, I wanted to be like that guy. All along, I want to be like David, I want to be like David. I wanted to be like David, but now I don't want to be like this David. Every story in the Bible, every character in every story, there's some aspect of intentional marring of their character. Gideon, we look at him, he begins kind of weird, but we weren't too hard on him, right? God's okay with our doubts, God's okay with our wrestling, God's okay with our questioning, and he does it well. And then we get to the end of Gideon's life, and we think, man, this is, this guy's done great. And then we just start seeing how he ends, and he ends so poorly. And we just collectively just, oh, there goes another one. There goes another one. The Bible is a, a very um, Eastern mentality book. It's not a Westernized book. It's an Eastern mentality book. So Western is very, you know, trying to be rational and logical, point A, point B, point C, point D, equals this. The Bible's not that way. The Bible doesn't say, here, we'll start in Genesis, point A, point A, point B, point C, point D, and we we'll just go along, and then boom, here's Jesus. The Bible is an Eastern book, which you want to make one main point, and you speak around that main point as often as you can to prove that main point. That's so why Jesus is the center of everything that happens in the Bible, and everybody surrounding him, every story is pointing, we need him. Just go all the way back to the beginning. We have a law that's put into place, right? God gives his law. And by the way, that's done not to earn God's Savior. You remember Exodus chapter 20? How does Exodus 20 start? I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I've created a relationship with you, not on the basis of anything you've done, on the basis of my grace and my goodness towards you. Now let me give you the law. It wasn't keep the law and then you'll be my people. It's you're my people, so here's a way that you should live. This is how you should live. But God gives the law. And the law shows up, and people try to keep the law, and they fail. And they fail, and they fail, and they fail. So God says, we need sacrifices. So sacrifices are given. And even as the sacrifices are given to help people that are failing in the law, priests who administer the sacrifices are messing up left and right. They themselves need sacrifices. Some of them are completely depraved and messed up. So then we get to Judges. We spend our time in the book of Judges this last school year. In the book of Judges, we have people that are just doing that which is right in their own eyes. I'll determine what morality is, because the law is not helping any of us. And we have kings come on the scene, right? Kings are going to show up after this. Because obviously, if if everybody is doing that which is right in their own eyes, we need a king. We need a ruler. So we have kings, but kings start to do things that are terrible. And then prophets are raised up to speak on behalf of God, to help the kings, to help the nation. And the people kill the prophets. Every storyline in the Bible is going one after the other to say we need a law keeper because nobody can keep that law. We need a better priest because these priests aren't working. We need a better sacrifice because we have to keep on sacrificing. We need a better judge who doesn't do that which is right in his own eyes does that which is right in God's eyes every second of every day. We need a better prophet who can actually speak on behalf of God in such a way that we would hear and understand and receive and he would implant God's truth in our hearts. We need a better king Because every human king is going to fail us. The story of the Bible is that we need a better prophet, priest, king. We need a better sacrifice and a better law keeper. And that's why Jesus is the center of everything. He is the prophet, priest, and king that we need. He is the better law keeper because he kept the law perfectly. He is the better sacrifice because he was sacrificed once for all. He is who we need. And the book of Judges has pointed to the fact that he will take care of the biggest issue that we need taken care of. The whole point of the Bible is that there is only one man who provides exactly what we need, and that's Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate. That's why when we come together to partake of communion, this is a worship service to celebrate what our Savior has done. He is our judge in the strictest sense of the word, our deliverer. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So, The heroes in the book of Judges are not the people, not the 12 judges, for as good as they were. The hero is our amazing God who would send, even in the defiance of his people and in their very discipline, he'd send the deliverer, not just a deliverer who would come, deliver, and die, but a deliverer who would come, deliver, die, and then rise from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all. We come to the end of the book of Judges, verse 25 of chapter 21. Every man did that which was right in their own eyes. And how do we get out of this crazy cycle? We're just left stuck in that cycle of sin. How do we get out of this cycle? The answer, if you would turn there, turn to the very end of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And we're left there. How do we get out of this crazy cycle of sin? If you turn to the next book, you stumble almost unaware into verse one of chapter one of the book of Ruth. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. How do we get out of the cycle of the book of Judges? We get out of it through the true deliverer who is going to be sent to conquer sin and death. And how is that true deliverer going to be sent, especially in the midst of all of this defiance, this darkness, this depravity? How is he going to show up and deliver his people? The answer to that question is a staggering story. It's absolutely mind-blowing how God enables the Messiah, to show up on the scene using what was going on in the book of Judges. And that's why the next sermon series that we get to after our Easter celebration will be seeing that story of darkness, of depravity, and of hope in the midst of despair in the book of Ruth. The book of Judges did not slow God down. And whatever you're going through right now, it's not slowing God down. Let's celebrate together that even in the midst of our defiance, as God in his grace would discipline us and would point us back to Jesus, grab our attention, say, wake up. Remember, that's when the prodigal son actually did the right thing. When he, quote unquote, in Luke 15, came to his senses. He woke up and he realized, oh, my father loves even the lowliest of servants in his household. Oh, the depths and the riches of the love of God. It's the love of Jesus Christ that will compel us. And that's why we celebrate that on a monthly basis together at the Lord's Supper. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna sing a song that will point us to Jesus. We can't contribute to our salvation. Any good that we have in us is only by his working through us. We need a deliverer who can do the delivering. He needs to come without being called because we're not seeking Him. And He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Father, we thank You for our amazing study through the book of Judges and the way that we've been able to see Christ, even this morning, so clearly from the pages of Scripture that point us to our need for a prophet, priest, king, a law keeper, a better sacrifice. And the fact that You would Give up your son for depraved, defiant people. Even while you're yet sinners, you would give him up for us. That is wondrous love. That we say with the hymn writer, what wondrous love is this, O my soul? How can you love us that much? What gift of grace is Jesus our prophet, priest, king, deliverer, and redeemer? God, help us to love him more as we sing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.